Proverbs chapter 1 is where we will give our attention for the next few moments. And as we give our attention there, our aim is to hear from the author, the Lord Himself. Proverbs chapter 1, I'll pick up the reading in verse 1 and we'll read through verse 7. Hear the word of the living God. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion, a wise man will hear and increase in learning. And a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure. The words of the wise and their riddles. Verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Join me at the throne of grace once again as we ask for God's help. Father, we ask that You would lay before us the bounty of Christ and that every person here would feast on the enoughness of Jesus. We ask this in His name. Amen. A careful, that is a prayerful, reading and rereading of Proverbs would do us all an immense amount of good. Many have taken the Proverbs a day, kind of like the apple a day keeps the doctor away challenge. A proverb a day, 31 chapters, generally 30 or 31 days in a month. And many have taken the approach of a proverb chapter per day to live in this book and as a result to gain wisdom. And if you would make it your aim over the course of this sermon series, it's eight parts, today's part two, so for the next two months, if you would make it your aim to at least one time prayerfully meditate through Proverbs, I believe that it would prepare your heart well for the series that we now walk through. Concerning this sermon text, verses 1-7, through and especially verse 7, the ESV Study Bible says, the wisdom offered here in this book is practical, so it teaches you how to live in wise dealings. It's intellectual. It will help you increase in learning. It's moral. That is, as the passage I just read says, it will teach you in righteousness, justice, and equity. It's probing. It will help you untangle the conundrums of life, what the passage says are riddles. And it's for everybody. Both the naive, the ignorant, that's the simple, the young, the youthful, the inexperienced, and the already experienced. That is, it says, let the wise hear. And from this passage, primarily verse 7, there are three considerations that I want to lay before you this morning. Number one, a phrase you've heard so many times that you almost won't be able to hear me say it because you think you already know it. And so do I. Are you ready? As if for the first time, I triple dog dare you to hear this statement. Wisdom begins with the fear 
of the Lord. Verse 7 says it plainly, doesn't it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Again, the ESV Study Bible notes on this verse, the core maxim of the book is this, the quest for wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. I don't know how many of you have made your way through A.W. Tozer's little nuclear bomb attack on man-centered views of God called the knowledge of the holy. But in that little book, the entire thing is based on Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, which is similar to chapter 1, verse 7. Proverbs 9:10 says, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding." The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This truth is all over Scripture, smattered everywhere, because when God says something once, He means it, but when He says something twice, we should be listening with an acute attention. Psalm 111, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding have all those who do His commandments, His praise endures forever. The word fear shows up 23 times in the book of Proverbs. And 20 of those 23 tell you in no uncertain terms, fear God. Proverbs 1.28 Then they will call on Me and I will not answer. They will seek Me diligently, but they will not find Me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 2, verse 4, if you seek her, that's wisdom, as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Many of us grew up on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And oh, that we would actually live in that green pasture of the Lord's goodness. But for those of us who know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 so well that we can spit its Words out like a cash register, have we paid attention to the next verse? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge God and He will make your path straight. Next verse. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Our first point is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Apart from the fear of the Lord, you cannot attain to wisdom. Cannot. It's not that you will not. It's that you cannot. Ask our brother Job, who said in Job 28, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. What is the fear of the Lord? Derek Kidner in his commentary puts it this way, a worshiping submission to the God of the covenant who has revealed Himself by name. If you noticed in Proverbs 1.7, it's not just Lord, it's capital L-O-R-D. Yahweh. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping God at great cost to Himself. The God who sent His Son not only to ratify, but to seal all of His covenant promises. Kidner again, a worshiping submission to the God of the covenant. 
The fear of the Lord is a heart issue. James Moffat in his translation of Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 from the Hebrew translated it this way, to know the deity is what knowledge means. To know God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I would say that wisdom and the fear of the Lord practically means this. As some wise sage, I don't know, I asked one of our brothers this morning, was it Van Til or was it Kuiper? I don't know, I can't find it. But it means this, no fact can be known unless it be known in relationship to God. All that you think you know, if you don't balance that truth underneath the reality that God is, then you can't know that fact factually. If that sounds like a proverb to you, then good. That's the point. 2 plus 2 equals 4 only because there's a fixed reality in the universe. And there are no facts apart from a fixed standard. And is our day not living in the conundrum of not being able to discern the obvious? What is a boy? What is a girl? What is truth? No fact can be known unless it be known in relationship to a fixed standard. And His name is G-O-D. Without the fear of the Lord, knowledge and understanding are elusive. That's what the psalmist meant in Psalm 36. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. If you take all the biblical data and you squeeze it together, you can see that the fear of the Lord is essentially a fear of displeasing the one we love. But the reason that we fear displeasing the one we love, or as Kidner said, a worshiping submission. That's the fear of the Lord. The reason we fear displeasing the one we love is because we're controlled by His love for us. It's not a punitive. It's not a retributive fear. It's not a fear that He's ready to smash us if we just slightly veer off course. It's the fear of displeasing the One we love because we're controlled by His love for us, which is what the New Testament means. I believe meditating on the book of Proverbs when the Apostle Paul writes, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us and we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and He died for all, so that, so that, so that, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on our behalf. Point number one, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, if you start there, what's going to happen to you? Good news, there are consequences. Number two, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what will wisdom look like? Wisdom will manifest itself in the fruit of teachability. Those who begin with the fear of the Lord continue on in that same path, which is what the book of Proverbs is about. The fruit or the evidence, the manifestation that you are continuing to fear the Lord is primarily a teachable heart. Isn't this what verse 7 is saying? The key verse of the whole book of Proverbs, Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What's the next phrase? Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That is, they're not teachable. Do you see the way of the fool? Now listen carefully to these words as if you've never heard them before. Fools despise wisdom. Now you meditate on that word before I try to unpack it. 
It doesn't say they avoid it. It doesn't say they're not open to it. It's a heart issue again. Which is why Kidner's right when he says the fear of the Lord is a worshiping submission to the Lord. It's a worship issue. It's a heart issue. It's a deity issue. Who is your God? Fools don't avoid wisdom. They hate it. They despise it. You can't be wise and unteachable. You can't be wise and a know-it-all. One flows from the love of God. That's wisdom. And one flows from the love of self. That's being a know-it-all. The easiest way to show off your foolishness for those of you who would aspire to such a thing, the easiest way to be a kindergartner in the show and tell class that you are an epic fool is to talk all the time. God gave you two ears and one mouth because He intends for you to be James 1. Quick to hear. Slow to speak. Wisdom in our lives manifests itself in teachability. That's our second point. That's the posture of our heart. We're learners. The wisest people are not the ones who are always speaking, but rather always seeking. Seeking the face of God. Ready and receptive through whatever means He so chooses. Even our enemies that we may gain more understanding so that we may please God more. Fools, on the other hand, are ever seeking to conform everybody else to their way of thinking. The issue that's most important to them has to be most important to everybody. Everybody's got to think the way I think. Everybody needs to live the way that I think life should unfold. And I need to inflict my words and my maxims, therefore, on all around me. Paul wrote in Timothy, these people are always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Are you teachable? Are you wise or are you a fool? That's what the book of Proverbs is about. The delineation between the two. Do you appreciate the input of others? That's a heart issue. Do you especially appreciate the input of the people who know you the best? Newsflash, husbands, your wife was given to you by God because He fully intends in His sovereign pleasure and purposes for her to be the primary channel through which He teaches you, humanly speaking? Do you appreciate the input of others, especially those who know you the best? To put it another way, seatbelt buckling time commences now. Do you like to be told what to do? Better yet, the Bible's going to put that question just a little deeper. Do you love it? Do you love to be told what to do? By God, through His Word, and any means He so chooses to deposit His wisdom into your life. Do you love to be told what to do? God's people don't like instruction. We love it. Because as 1 John chapter 3 says, sin is lawlessness. Not loving what God has told us is the essence of sin. Apart from God's law, all we can do is sin. So what does a wise person do? Psalm 1, the portrait of Christ, 
meditate on the law of God day and night. Why? Because our delight is in the law of the Lord. A teachable heart is a sure fruit of the wise. Once again, the ESV Study Bible. The great virtue that the book of Proverbs seeks to instill in us is teachability. Proverbs 1.5, we read a moment ago, a wise man will hear and increase in learning. That's a teachable heart. A man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. It's a teachable heart. Proverbs 2, listen to the proactive language. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. If you cry for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, seek her as silver. Search for her as hidden treasures. Then, you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. To whom does He give it? All those who have proactively sought after it. Does Jesus not show us the perfectly wise sage? Whereas the editors and authors of Proverbs, as we saw last week, Solomon and Agur and Hezekiah and Lemuel and the others, who put together this instruction manual in wisdom called Proverbs, does Jesus not prove to be the perfectly wise sage? Whereas the Proverbs say constantly, listen, make your ear attentive, cry out for wisdom, search for her, seek for her, listen to Jesus pack it all into a line. Let these words sink into your ears. Luke 9.44 What does He follow that with? The Son of Man will be delivered over and crucified. The solution to the greatest conundrum in the universe is that the wisdom of God is put on manifest display for the whole universe to see. In fact, the the Scriptures tell us that the angels in heaven stand on their tiptoes and seek to look over the precipice into the bottomless depths of the love of God in the Gospel. How can it be that heaven's favorite would come to rescue rebels at such a great cost to Himself that the Lord of glory would be lacerated so that I could have the forgiveness of my sins? Jesus the sage says, let these words sink into your ears. The wise person knows that he or she needs the insights that the Lord alone gives to us through His Word, through prayer, and through others. And we don't eliminate any one of those three. We take His Word seriously, but not alone because we can miss it. We're not autonomous beings. We're not lone rangers in the kingdom. We don't always come up with the right insights. So we take His Word, and His Word is the foundation, but we take His Word prayerfully. Lord, why did You say it that way? Lord, would You cause my life to look like that? Father, why have I so long disregarded that command? Why have I put that promise on the shelf and not treasured it in my heart and asked for You to deepen it in my life? His Word in prayer. But not just His Word in prayer because you can do those alone. His Word with prayer alongside others. Think about the way the book of Proverbs is set up. A father for nine chapters talking to his son. A sage for five more chapters talking to his pupils. More sages taking the things that seem watertight for five more chapters to say it doesn't always work that way. It's God's Word prayer-saturated through others. Think about God's wisdom in setting up the church. 
a plurality of elders. Why would God do it that way? It's because as Alexander Strzok in his book Biblical Eldership put it so well, no church should walk in lockstep with the foibles of one man and all God's people say, Amen. (laughs) Nobody's wise enough by themselves. I'm basically saying what wise people have said for a long time. That you don't even know you well enough to be sure that you have everything right unless that's tested in the community of the saints. You don't know you half as well as you think you know you. This is the four quadrants of self-knowledge. There's stuff up here that you and everybody else around you know is true about you. This is what color your hair is and maybe what your favorite food is. This is just the obvious stuff about you. But opposite of that quadrant is one down here. And that stuff that you don't know about yourself and nor does anyone else except for God. How many hairs are on top of your head? There's stuff that you and everybody else know. There's stuff that you nor anybody else knows. And then there's this other quadrant up here. That's stuff you know, but nobody else knows it. This may be good things like your secrets with the Lord. Private communion with God. You couldn't explain it to somebody else if you wanted to. But then it could be negative things, secret sins, pet sins, habitual sins, dark stuff in your heart that you know it, but nobody else does. So you know it and everybody knows it. You don't know it and nobody else knows it. You know it and nobody else knows it. That only leaves us one quadrant, right? You don't know it, but people around you do. You don't know it about yourself, but God put others in your life because He wants you to know. And if you can't receive that help from others, then you're not going to like the book of Proverbs. And if you want to be more astonished, think about Jesus Himself taking the book of Proverbs. The Lord of glory, the omniscient, all-knowing God of the universe who created the cosmos by the word of His power and sustains it right now. All the twinkle, twinkle little stars, He names them and tells them to stay put. Jesus is the Lord of glory. Jesus is the Maker and the sustainer of everything that exists, including you. He wove His own mom together in her mother's womb. He made everything. And Luke 2.52 says, if you want your mind to be blown, look no further than this verse. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom. Who do we think we are to be unteachable? Jesus increased in wisdom. You can't walk with Jesus and be a know-it-all. Instead, you'll love acquiring wisdom, Proverbs 2, more than hidden treasures. Number three, foolishness, the counterpart to wisdom, foolishness manifests itself in prideful resistance to instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The wise manifest their wisdom in a teachable heart. And third, foolishness manifests itself the other way. Prideful resistance to instruction. In the book of Proverbs, the primary contrast is wisdom and foolishness. And here's one of God's unbreakable rules of life. There's nothing you can do to counteract this law of God's kingdom. Here it comes. You can't be both prideful and wise. God won't allow it. He said it very plainly in other places of Scripture, like James chapter 4, God resists the proud. A man can't be great in his own eyes and 
fear the Lord. The two are mutually exclusive. The wise don't separate the fear of the Lord and wisdom. Because Proverbs doesn't separate them. While it's true that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's also true that the fear of the Lord is the way to remain wise. Listen to Proverbs 15. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. And before honor comes humility. Isn't that interesting? It's the opposite of pride. Proud people are most easily recognized by their prayerlessness and their wordlessness. Soft-spoken, very gentle, easily approachable, non-confrontational, hate-and-argument people can be very proud. Humility and pride are not just dispositions or personality traits. Proud people are recognized not by loud, bombastic behavior and taught. That would probably go along with it. But proud people are most easily recognized by their prayerlessness and their wordlessness. Why ask God for help? That's prayer. Why consult His instruction? That's His Word. If you're already quite capable on your own to handle life. Proud people, proud people clearly manifest themselves in prayerlessness and wordlessness. Listen to Proverbs explain it. Far better than me. Proverbs 12. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Proverbs 14. There is a way which seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 16. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end again is the way of death. Verse 25. The most dangerous thing a fool could do, which we hear this all the time, don't we? The most dangerous thing a fool can do is follow his heart. Please do not do that. Do not do that. In fact, that's the problem. Your heart is the problem. Apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which happens to a person upon conversion, that is when you are saved and united to the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, apart from the fullness of Christ, apart from the fear of the Lord, your heart is a cistern of sin and pride. It seems like your heart knows what is right. And you should follow your heart. But listen to God. Proverbs 21.2 Every man's way is right in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the heart. The Bible doesn't tell you to follow your heart. It tells you to guard it. Proverbs 4 Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Instead of coveting the smokescreen, that comes from the mirage, the illusion of joy, that comes from a sinful lifestyle, the wise man trains his heart, not listens to it. Proverbs 24. We preach this to our heart. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. The righteous have learned that it's only the heart of a sinister person who loves the way of evil and forsakes God. Proverbs 14, He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious, that's a hard issue, in his ways despises God. Proverbs, as we said last week, 
lays out this general pattern that stuff in God's economy usually works certain ways. A notorious example, we touched it last week, here's one of God's patterns for the world. If you work hard, you're probably going to prosper. And if you are lazy, you will probably be materially poor. It doesn't always work that way, but it's a general pattern of God's ways and God's works. But the wise who fear the Lord understand that God, listen carefully, is not a means to an end. That means they don't take those Proverbs and put together the maxims of life, the way things tend to work in God's economy. They do not say, okay, I'm going to fear God so that I will prosper. That is to flip the creator and creature relationship upside down. That would be to invert the entire order of redemption. That would be to make man the end of the Gospel rather than God. Prideful people cannot understand what I'm saying right now. They always, always take the Lord's name in vain. Even when they're not spouting profanities through their God-created lips with the breath He put in their lungs. How do lost people always, always, always take the Lord's name in vain? That's because they only fear the Lord insofar as He does their bidding. If He does not satisfy their carnal pleasures, they're going to blame Him. They will curse Him. They will abandon Him altogether. Consider the way the godly man has been trained by the fear of the Lord to understand this truth. It's something that prideful people cannot grasp. Proverbs 15-16 Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. You see how God just broke the rule of the normal pattern? But the fear of the Lord remained. Those who fear the Lord understand that they're already, already in possession of the greatest treasure in the universe. God. They do not therefore incessantly covet more in this life than God sovereignly provides for them. Moreover, they recognize that from experience and from watching the patterns that God has established in His world, that the more material provision typically also means the more challenges, not less. The Apostle Paul learned this lesson from the Gospel as he embraced Jesus more and more deeply in the fear of the Lord. Philippians 4, I do not speak from want, Paul said, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means and also how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. Paul writes, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Christ is the end, the goal, the telos, not a means to an end of creature comforts. So, the wise believer prays, teach me Your way, O Lord, and I will walk in Your truth. So, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom manifests itself in a teachable heart through whatever means God intends. His Word, prayer, and His people especially. And fools demonstrate themselves in a prideful resistance to God's Word and God's way. For application, two thoughts. Certainly we could give many. But just two for your prayerful Lord's Day afternoon consideration. 
Christ-likeness. That is God's goal for you. He wants to show off the wonder and worth of His Son by conforming every one of His children into the image of His Son. Christ-likeness. That's being conformed into the image of Jesus. Includes gaining wisdom that flows from a fear of the Lord. You can't be like Christ and not fear the Lord. Here's your application. No one in human history is as wise as Jesus. He is the true and greater Solomon. He is the praying man who asked God for one thing. Not once, but daily. That He would walk according to the Word. That He would be given the gift of wisdom. And He walked in wisdom because like no other, He walked flawlessly in the fear of the Lord. No one was more wise than this sage because no one feared God more. And as a result, no one has been more honored or highly exalted by God. Listen to Proverbs now. Proverbs 28.14 How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. As a result of Jesus' Godward fear, He did not fear what man could do to Him. In that regard, He is the perfect embodiment of Proverbs 29. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. He who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Our King, our exalted Redeemer, because His eye, the Lord Jesus, was always on His Father, He thus always walked in the fear of the Lord. The Lord Jesus taught His followers by example and by word what He was expressing in Matthew chapter 10. Do not fear man, because there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed and nothing hidden that will not be known. Jesus knew that His secret, private, personal times would be exposed before the all-seeing eye of God. He lived in the fear of the Lord. He knew that it was impossible to slip into the shadows and sin and come back into the light as if it didn't happen. He always, always feared the Lord. And so He said, do not fear man, because... Nothing concealed will go unrevealed. Nothing hidden will not eventually be made known. This is the fear of the Lord. This is Christ's likeness. What Jesus is saying is that those who walk in the fear of the Lord have nothing to fear. Because a healthy fear of the Lord produces holy living. Those who walk in the fear of man will one day have their deeds exposed and will be judged by the very Lord that they did not fear. How ironic is that? In a statement that sounds paradoxical to lost people, non-Christians, you can't understand what I'm about to say. But it makes perfect sense to the children of God. All of us. Jesus taught in the very next phrase in Matthew 10, do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. How does that work? But rather, fear God who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. How counterintuitive is it to human nature to make this argument? Do not fear other people because all they can do is kill you. 
That's totally counterintuitive. Self-preservation says that makes no sense. It doesn't sound like an argument that would take away fear, does it? It doesn't take away fear if it stands alone. Don't fear people who can kill your body. By itself, that doesn't work. Jesus therefore added, but rather, fear God. Why? Because He can do that too. He can kill your body too. Ask Nadab. Ask Abihu. Ask Ananias. Ask Sapphira. He can do that too. Ask all the people who took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner in the church at Corinth. He can do that too. But He can do more than that. He can cast your body, Matthew chapter 10, into hell. So Jesus says, therefore, fear Him. Proverbs 8.13, Jesus speaks. That's a chapter about Jesus. We dealt with that last week. The fear of the Lord is to hate all evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Jesus, perfectly fearing the Father, hates all evil and walks in holiness. No one more than Jesus demonstrated a healthy fear of the Lord. He wasn't a man-pleaser because His eye was ever on the Father. Jesus is not only the true and greater Solomon, He's the true and greater Israel. He's the true and greater people of God who heard in Deuteronomy, you shall not fear them, the surrounding nations. For the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. Jesus lived on that truth. To the degree that we fix our heart on God, to that same degree, we will be released from the fear of man. This is Christ's likeness. This is all over Scripture. Finally, second application. The Gospel is God's ultimate fear killer. On the cross, God put death to death. Jesus killed death. He took death and put a noose around the neck of death. Put another way, the Gospel is God's one and only solution to the problem of sin. And a right view of the cross and resurrection of Jesus will turn your heart toward God and away from sin. Do you have just a little bit of room left at this hour to think and pray for just a moment on something that I trust would be not only a sermon tidbit, but a life lesson if God would be so pleased to answer the prayer that I have prayed and the way that He has led me to say this to you. Just a little bit more room in your heart, please. This is an important truth. The choice the Bible gives us is not no fear. That's not an option. You can't live without fear. It cannot be done. The person who has no fear is a myth. Proverbs would call him a fool. You cannot escape fear. The question is, what is your ultimate fear? If you think about a fearless soldier, it does not mean that he does not fear his opponent. Rather, he respects him. Therefore, he trains diligently all his life with all of his energy. And he carefully follows orders because there's a healthy fear of what's on the other side of that line. If your greatest fear is not rightly ordered, you're going to be bound to foolish living Charles Simeon put it well, there is nothing but a regard to God Himself that can ever overcome the fear of man. The Bible never sets out to remove your fears. This is what I'm finally trying to say to you. 
The Bible does not set out to totally remove, though God says, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. But read in context, He doesn't totally remove fear, He reorders them. Instead of fearing man and what man can do to you, God says, Hebrews 13, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? The Bible wants you to fear God by seeing what He has done for you. That's why R.C. Sproul told his family a catechism that they had to learn in addition to all the other good ones in human history, and it went like this. The Sproul family catechism. Who do the Sprouls fear? Answer, the Sprouls fear no man because the Sprouls fear God. To be set free from the lesser fear of man, what man can do to us, you don't need to get more brave. You need to be more humbled by the beauty of a crucified Redeemer. That Jesus dealt with your biggest problem at Calvary. Jesus dealt with your biggest fear at Calvary. The thing that you should have really feared, namely, your own sin, was cast into the deepest part of the sea by the Almighty Jesus. Because Jesus feared God more than He feared the cross, because He drank down the cup of God's wrath for your sin on the cross, because He feared God more than He feared death, and He feared God even to the point of death, He obeyed God even when the greatest earthly fear was staring Him in the face. He feared God to the end. He died to forgive me and to forgive you of all the times that we've not feared the Lord. Because He always feared the Lord and therefore always walked in perfect wisdom, He can atone for all the times that we failed to fear the Lord and walked in perfect foolishness. The Gospel of Jesus is the ultimate fear killer. Or better yet, it's the ultimate fear reorientation device. The Gospel reorients our fear by replacing it with a greater fear. A healthy fear. A fear of God. No longer do you have to fear God sings the Gospel. No longer do you have to fear that God will execute judgment on you for your sin. Instead of judging you, He stoops down and kisses you on the cheek and drops your well-deserved anvil on the head of His Son. This is love, this sacrifice, this obedience, this Son of God, this all-wise One walking in the fear of the Lord all the way to the cross that God had designed in His infinite wisdom to demonstrate His love for foolish men like you and me. For man-pleasers like you and me. For people who feared all the wrong things like you and me. This Gospel of the love of Christ for you is the antidote to all unhealthy fears. It's the doorway into a healthy fear of the Lord. It takes away all the punitive fear that God's out to get me or God's ready to smash me or God can't wait just to punish me. It takes away all this fear when we see that because Jesus feared the King more than any other man, we are now invited into the arena of the love of that King forevermore. Listen to Proverbs. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. By the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. How is iniquity atoned for? By loving kindness and truth. He doesn't say, now you better be scared of me because of what I did to my son. He's saying, now can you see how much I love you because of what I put my son forward to avail you to. The Gospel, 
the gospel, the gospel, the gospel is the only wrench in the universe that God has in His toolbox to turn your upside-down unhealthy fears Godward. Listen to the, how carefully, listen carefully, listen carefully to how the resurrection of Jesus from the dead does not remove fear, but rightly reorients it. I said to our sisters on Friday evening as they began their weekend of meditation, uh, in the Word together. What a joy for them to do that. I had the privilege to say to them at the beginning, be like those women who came to the tomb. And if you and I will bring all our fears to the tomb of Jesus, God's not going to take them all away. He does remove them. But He reorients them Godward. In Matthew chapter 28, when the women came to the tomb of Jesus, they were told by the angel, do not be afraid. Verse 5. Matthew 24, 28 verse 8, three verses later, it says they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. If you'll bring your fears to the tomb of Jesus, and in that claustrophobic space, you see that God has rolled the stone away because there's a resurrected Lord of glory there, and you take all your fears into that tomb, and you put them into the hands of the risen Redeemer, He will remove those, but He will also reorient you, and you'll have a greater fear like Peter in Luke chapter 5 who had fished all night. And Jesus says, why don't you just cast your net on the other side? And in a very sophisticated way, He just said to Jesus, why don't you stay in your lane, Mr. Preacher, and I'll stay in my lane. I'll do the fishing, you do the preaching. But to accommodate Jesus, He throws His net in, and so great was the catch that it began to break the nets. And so great was the haul that it began to sink their boat, not only theirs, but their neighboring boat as well. And as they began to sink, it says that Peter was filled with fear. Jesus didn't take His fear away. He elevated it. He showed him that there's a fear of the Lord that reorients every other fear and puts it in its rightful place. This hemorrhaging woman for 12 years who just thought, I've spent all my money. And Mark chapter 5 says, was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. Oh my, oh my. Twelve years of constant hemorrhaging and in her desperation, she sees a crowd pressing around Jesus of Nazareth and she thought to herself, the text tells us, if she could just touch His garment, that maybe she would be healed. And sure enough, pressing through that crowd and getting close enough just to graze the hem of His cloak, we're told in Mark chapter 5, immediately her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And Jesus turns and says, who touched me? And the disciples seek to rebuke Him and say, how foolish can you be to ask a question like that in a crowd the size of this? Then Mark 5.33, the woman... Fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before Jesus and told the whole truth. He didn't take her fear away. He reoriented it. You want to be able to go to sleep tonight? I'm talking about unconscious rest as you pillow your head on the all-sovereign God who cares for you so much that He sent His Son to die and rise again to make you His child forever. Do you want restedness in Jesus that yields a clean conscience before God so that when you put your head on your pillow, and I mean tonight, 
You can sleep in the blessed land of Proverbs 19. The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. In our fallenness, we tend to fear everything, including especially death. But nothing, nothing can unsettle the conscience of a soul that's rested in the hands of an almighty Redeemer. Do you want freedom in life? Here's God's answer. Do you want freedom in life? The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 14, is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Do you want to avoid the snares of death? The Gospel. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The Prince of Darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. After I pray, we're going to have a moment to respond. Some by coming to the Lord's table. And if I could put one frame around the Lord's table, that beautiful Gospel picture, it would be this frame. This meal is a fear of the Lord monument. This meal is a fear of the Lord memorial. It's a place that the church remembers, I should have been crushed for my sin. My blood should have been poured out for my iniquity. And it wouldn't have done one bit of good to atone or take it away. But instead, God stepped down from heaven. And as I said a moment ago, He stoops low enough to kiss me on the cheek and drop my anvil on the head of His Son. How dare we come to this table flippantly, harboring sin without examining, examining ourselves. First Corinthians says people who do that sleep. Proverbs 8 says it like this in closing. He who finds Me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against Me injures himself. All those who hate Me love death. The conclusion of the whole matter. The conclusion of the whole matter said the wise writer is this, when all is heard, Ecclesiastes 12, fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank You that there is one and only one who perfectly feared You, walked in the fear of the Lord, and therefore was eminently wise. We confess to You that we have entertained so many other fears, the fear of man, the fear of not having the reputation among men that we wish to have, many of us manifesting that self in the foolishness of an online life that isn't true and trying to paint pictures of ourselves for the whole world out there that will click on our link that we're something we're not. We just want everybody else to think good of us, Lord. 
And if we don't do it that way, we do it in our conversations and we ramble with our words and we try to inflict our maxims on everybody else's life so that they'll think the way we think. We are prideful people, Lord. We have not feared You. And worse than that, we've been so prideful that we've tried to impress You with our so-called wisdom. That we'll be religious enough to fix the little problem that we thought we had called sin. But we can't live like that when we look at Calvary. And we see wisdom hanging on a tree. We see that you and you alone had the wisdom to design and carry out the plan of the redemption of sinners that upholds your integrity and character and righteousness and reconciles us to you in a way that we can be friends. How can it be? Oh, there He is, the Lord of glory. And Lord, we ask that You would make us like those women who came to that borrowed tomb and we'd bring all our fears with us. And we'd put them in the hands of the risen Jesus and then You would give us a healthy, holy fear that we could walk in Your light, that we could live in Your Word, that we could be men and women of prayerfulness with You in Your light and with one another, Lord. Cause us to walk in the fear of the Lord. This is the beginning of wisdom. And I'm asking that all in my hearing who don't know what I've been talking about, this green pasture and these still waters of the grace of the Gospel of Jesus, oh, how I ask that You would turn every heart to Christ. That You would give over to Jesus as trophies of His grace, those who've yet to trust in Him, that even now, You would be saving souls and changing lives as we respond at the Lord's Supper or remaining seated in meditation on the things that You have laid before us. We ask that You would be glorified as we walk with joyful trembling in the fear of the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.